cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And what a week it has been so far. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, it's just astonishing. Uh, first, we want to take over the Reserve Bank. And, uh, of course, ABSA must get nailed in the process because how dare you say something nasty about our great rulers. Right. And then, I mean, public, if you look back on our Twitter timeline, the public protector had this picture of a book. I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's written by a guy called Stephen Goodson or Goodwin or someone. He was a shareholder in the Reserve Bank, by the way. Also a well-known white nationalist, a well-known Holocaust denier, and and, approve, and he approves of, like, Nazism. And his latest book is Henrik Verwood, the greatest prime minister South Africa has ever known. <laughs> she yeah. didn't recommend that one, though, for some reason. Yeah, no, it's 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 just astonishing. Stephen Goodson. Goodson. It's just let's get it right before we uh, libel someone else. But um, it's quite interesting the uh, sort of paraphernalia that our uh, government ministers end up reading and coming across. Why, well, assuming they read? Well, um, clearly uh, the public protector doesn't read much because if you read her sort of judgments or whatever they would be called. Uh, they, they're not findings. They're not very well written, but uh, but she's she is reading a she seems to be reading a Holocaust denier. That's that's uh, I mean, something. I mean, I'm against central banks too, but I mean, you can read Murray Rothbard. He actually talks about yeah. banking. Okay, but let's let's get this right. You're against central banks because you don't want the government to control the economy. Well, I don't think our government's against the central bank because the the central bank's currently stopping them from stealing more. There's a there's a big difference. Yeah, but I think it's inherent. What's inherent? For government to steal <laughs> and they'll use anything they yeah, can. Yeah, so at the moment so. I'm quite pro uh, re- Reserve Bank just because they're they're possibly the only thing uh, protecting the sovereignty of this country as it stands. Well, until we get to this conversation, of course. Mm, well, do you want to go ahead and, and, and introduce uh, introduce our guests? Right. It's, so- uh, Oh, go find Can I go after now? that look. Jeez. Thank you. Thank you. So our guest today is uh, Gideon Hubert, also known as Gun Servant. Maybe he's got a thing for them. Bit of well, a I hope he's got a thing for them because Bit we want to talk about them for an hour. So. Yeah, but nevertheless, welcome, Gideon. Thanks for, for having me. It's great to be here. It's like the highlight of my 2017 at this point. <laughs> well, we just started. It could be the low light too. Uh, I'm glad we're only halfway through 2017. You've got lots of time to make up for, you know… This is this is average, you know. It's it's all downhill from here. So <laughs> the less you talk about that, the, let's just put that behind us. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. And did you know, dear listeners, Gideon actually flew up specifically to see us today. I mean, that's called dedication. And uh, so we thank you for doing that. It's my pleasure. It's uh, some of us are more dedicated than others. So <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, even we, some we, of the Joburg people won't even join us. So. <laughs> Just take take Gideon's lead. Indeed. So, Gideon, guns. Now, okay, I've got a bias. I love guns. Jonathan, you like yeah, guns? Yeah, I'm a fan of guns. Right. We both love guns. We both, I think, want everyone to own one, essentially. So, where did this thing start with you? It started with me, um, essentially, one night after the umpteenth time I wake up with uh, a noise, either inside or outside, that I can't identify. And I realized that 
if somebody is trying to break in and do me harm, the best thing I have with which to try and hopefully fend them off is a hockey stick, which doesn't fill you entirely with a heck of a lot of confidence. Uh, it's better than, a, a, I don't know, a wiffle bat. But I thought, okay, the gun laws, the Farms Control Act of South Africa, I, I bought in at the time really into the Smith that it's going to take two years to get a license and you really need to go through a heck of a lot of hoops. And it put me off. It put me off the, the entire concept entirely. And then I ran into a friend who said, well, no, yeah, I've got a gun. I've had it now for a while and I carry it on me and I go practice with it and train. It's what are you talking about? And then that single moment, the entire sort of illusion of difficulty in owning one broke down for me. And I went and I investigated what is required. I bought a firearm, a Hickland Koch USP, which I'm very fond of. It's, a, it's, it's some good taste. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice solid German uh, firearm and it's uh, it shoots really nicely too. And I purchased it. I went through the whole competency application story, the whole process, which is daunting if you've never done it because it looks like rocket science, which it completely isn't. Uh, but nonetheless, after the first one, it gets easier. That's what I told my wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I told mine too, but she doesn't believe me. But uh, got the the license approved eventually. It took about four to five months to go through the entire process. And uh, I, then I started training and practicing with the thing. I become more confident, more proficient, and safer at the same time because you can't get less safe with something the more proficient you are. And it's I've never looked back since. That's that's why I'm here. Right. So, for some reason, Jonathan and Gideon, we, li- we live in a country that's you know, a bit violent. Some would say genocidal, uh, though we don't, of course. So, what I don't understand, Gideon, is that in a country as violent as ours, guns are never part of the conversation. It's always about bringing back the death penalty. Uh, it's always about... What is it about? It's about men are trash. It's about all these other things. But it's never about, okay, guys, defend yourself, get a gun, and there we go. But it doesn't seem to be part of the general conversation. Well, when it is part of the conversation, it's usually a bad part of the conversation. It's, mm, I was it's just going to say. Yeah, it's an object that's frequently vilified uh, because it's black and it looks scary and it's got a trigger and it's in you know in the media being… And guns kill people, Gideon. Guns kill people by themselves. You, know, mm. you, can just, you can't trust the things out of eyesight or earshot. Mm. You know, everyone just perishes around it. And this is a narrative that's been hammered into us since at least the mid-90s by my least favorite four-letter word, which is GFSA, Gun Free South Africa. They're an NGO I don't quite understand. I, uh, they have no official membership base. Well, as best as you can, and we know on the show we try to steal man yeah. our opponents, so as best as you can, tell us what you think they're trying to do. Well, what they were trying to do before the Farms Control Act was enacted, which was very much a result of their lobbying activity and their pushing and their influence with government at the time. What they're trying to do is create literally what they say, a gun-free South Africa, which is there are no guns in this country, uh, which is as ridiculous as it sounds. Has anyone ever managed to do that on earth? No. There Mm. are two countries that have tried the hardest that I know, and the one is Honduras. They sit with the highest homicide rate in the world at the moment, and civilian ownership is completely banned. But, of course, when you ban civilian ownership, you're not gun-free, are you? You still have all the state organs 
that mm. own and uh, frequently then use it to perpetrate violence upon the rest of the populace. And another favorite example is Jamaica. Now, Jamaica is an interesting story. Uh, about 1973, there was a bit of a rise in crime wave. Their homicide rate was still really low at the time. I'm going to lie to you if I say what it was, but it was like two point something, three point whatever. It wasn't no way out of control. So in response to this, President of Jamaica brought in two acts. It was the Gun uh, the gun Courts Act, and there was a, another one. And essentially what it did, it banned civilian ownership of farms completely, bar select few people who could actually comply with the provision. Sounds familiar. What this succeeded in doing, of course, was turn gun, private gun ownership into a completely elitist thing, and the vast majority of the Jamaicans couldn't afford it. And within seven years, by 1980, the homicide rate had quadrupled. Now, I'm not going to trend to the trap of saying correlation equates mm. causation, but there's clearly no – there was no relationship between less murder and less mm. civilian farm ownership there for certain – well, I don't know of a single example on the planet. Well, people love to use Australia as, a, uh, as an example. I love Australia. Um, I'm not sure what, what stories you have, but I, I think the important general concept I, I like to think about when people argue, well, if you get rid of the guns, we won't have any crime or we won't have terrorism, for example, is that, number one, uh, if you make guns illegal, that's a law. People who want to do illegal things like murder other people don't care about laws against guns because they don't care about laws against murder. Um, so it, they will find a way to get a gun. And if they can't get a gun because you've been that good uh, in stopping guns from, from spreading, they'll use other means. They'll homemade, homemade weapons, bombs, knives, cars, uh, etc., so I don't know what Australian uh, sort of – Australia is a favorite poster child for people told up as a mm -hmm. success story of gun control. And uh, it is the biggest load of hogwash I've ever heard in my life. What has happened – okay, so we had the Port Arthur massacre in 1996. In response to this, the Australian government brought out a, a wonderful – Completely not a travesty of a law called the National Firearms Agreement. Not so much an agreement as an imposed piece of legislation that no one except the governing sort of elite had any – well, I'm not going to call them the governing elite. Let's just say members of parliament and the politicians had any say in drafting this, this thing. Uh, they essentially banned the ownership of several types of firearm and heavily restricted whatever remained. Immediately overnight, with the completion of the National Firearms Agreement's implementation – uh, the amount of homicides perpetrated by firearms steeply plummeted. However, the homicide rate did not twitch at all. In fact, it increased, I think, the first two years after the implementation of the NFA, peaked at a point higher than 1996 and 1997s, and only then started coming down, uh, which it was on a downward trend anyway before the NFA, long-term downward trend, like most of these things tend to be. The reason why it didn't come down, the homicide rate, is because of a thing called weapon substitution, which was immediately and seamlessly done by people committing murders in Australia. The amount of murders by sharp objects and the increased yeah. simultaneously as the amount perpetrated by firearms decreased. So the mm. graphs cross each other in… There's a similar South African graph. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but uh, there was a graph – it's a while back now, but there's a graph in South Africa showing our um, – Firearm murders. I think I went to a forensics lecture some time back, which basically showed our firearm um, murders had, were starting to come down, but our knife murders literally crossed over um, and and going up. And and you know, anecdotally in, in medicine, we've seen this where if you were working early two thousands in the medical field, you would have seen 
quite a lot of shootings. Um, that volume has, has decreased, although it's still there. Uh, but the um, amount of sort of knife injuries is, uh, has sort of ro- risen again. And the guys in the Cape, for example, have become, uh, the surgeons have become experts again at uh, treating things like stabbed hearts because uh, suddenly knife violence is back up. So, yeah, that's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. You take away the one weapon, you just get, as you say, weapon substitution. It's essentially as, oh, here we go. Here's an object people with a brutal human nature used to kill other people. So let's regulate the object and hope that the behavior changes, which is, of course, uh, not how these things work. Uh, what? Sorry, Roman. So, sorry, my mic's back on, but that is how politicians work, though. This is true. Regulate something. Because we need to show that we're doing something, so let's just regulate something. And it's never, it's never behavior, or hardly ever behavior, unless it's drugs or prostitution for some reason. But it's never behavior, it's always an object. It's always an object because it's, uh, it's easy political capital. All you have to do is uh, go on stage, hold up a picture of a firearm, uh, play on their public's emotions and say, if we can just restrict this thing more, of course you're not telling them how restricted it already happens to be because who needs that background knowledge? We just need to build a new straw man that we can set on fire quickly for the next voting cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the thing about gun control is I don't actually need to convince people that firearms are useful or good or well, they can't be good because they can't be bad. You know, I'm, I'm, th- then I'm guilty of also attaching an attribute to an inanimate object. It's the user at the end of the day that depends on. Anyway, as I don't need to so talk about gun-free South Africa. Yeah, I don't need to talk about guns. I just need to convince people to think for themselves. But sorry, getting back to gun-free yeah, South Africa. Don't worry, I took you off a yeah. garden path. Um, they are primarily funded, from what I could figure out, by the Open Society Foundation of South Africa. Uh, I mentioned it earlier to Roman, and he was chomping at the bit with that one a little bit. George Soros, man. He's, oh, really? He's funding them. But apparently it's not very much. No, no. This is – okay, this is the actual joke. All right. So uh, you can't access all – It's amazing how – sorry, I just need to interject because George Soros has fingers in many, many pies he funds, in this country. He funds four or five of the biggest NGOs in this country. From Section 27 to Africa Check to Equal Education to the TAC. Nevertheless, sorry about that. No, you know, no, please, but, after you. Yeah, you're, you're, on to, you're on the same track, though. So OSFSA are, from what I could gather, the primary donors to Gun Free South Africa. I say from what I could gather because I've never seen people obfuscate annual returns as – Either deliberately or because their IT is really incompetent. But uh, the last two and only existing <laughs> annual uh, reports of gun free as they were 2012 or 2013. And I think their income was around 400 and something thousand for 2012 and maybe double it like 800 and something 2013. Now, that's not a heck of a lot of money to run an NGO on. Uh, the Open Society Foundation, they the annual reports didn't overlap with the GFSA ones I had. I think I got 2014, 2015. And they donated like something similar like 500,000 and 600,000 rand for the year to them. Compared to what they donate, for example, to the ISS, uh, what's it, Institute of Security Studies, and they donate mm-hmm. to uh, Africa Check. Compared to the amounts that go into those uh, companies, organizations, groups, it's what Ganfrey they get is very like – very pitiful. Yeah. So they're clearly not a funding priority for this mm. organization. 
And uh, I don't actually know how they afford the research they commission, the so-called research they commission. They have no popular support. If you look at the workshops on their Twitter feed that they hold in places like Delft, there's an attendance of about 10 people, of which three wear Sonki Gender Justice shirts because they've now linked up with that organization. So who's the, who's the audience and who's the, you know, who's the paid uh, participants? I don't know. Um, either way, they've been instrumental in the late 90s pushing the legislation through to where we are now. And I don't think they've managed to win a debate since then. If Well, there has never been a debate with them, really, about <laughs> Okay, fair enough. So they they push they push an agenda, and that agenda is they want to get the firearms firearms control act in, in, enforced. Is that is that well? That's no. what they got. That's what they got. That's, right, that's what they got. Inverted commas got right because I'm not sure if the outcome was as they would want it to be. No, it most certainly hasn't. And oh. it's it's. Uh, Are you two still worried about outcome? <laughs> it's not about the yeah. outcome. No, I, I don't know, Ramon. We should think about the good yes. intentions. Eh? Yes, that's absolutely. what matters. Well, they're trying to take uh, R5 <laughs> rifles away from the public order per police at the moment. That is their current oh, okay. uh, sort of pet project because… Americana. After, yeah, exactly. Because Americana. Because okay. of Americana. So that's, yeah, that's right. an easy thing to milk yeah. because of the emotional value of it. It's uh, fine. Take their R5s. Give them AR-15s. No problem. Uh, problem solved. Exactly. Uh, okay. So, so they introduced that act. What does that act do? Because maybe you want to go into legally what… We have in South Africa having a debate with someone on Twitter a, a little while ago, a couple of days, um, who it was more about the American uh, stuff. Uh, America, in my opinion, in this respect, is a, a far more advanced constitution than ours. Absolutely. Um, because it clearly states what the citizens' rights are around guns. Our constitution is not uh, very obvious. So do you want to talk about constitutionally where we stand, um, which is a bit of a gray area as far as I get, and – then what the Firearms Control Act has done and, and where we are currently. The first thing I'd like to say uh, before I get into that is because South Africans really love b- bashing the U.S. without really any understanding. You're of on that. the wrong show, dude. Uh, I, I know. <laughs> uh, but th- there'll be someone out there triggered by this. You know, he Pun. <laughs> it is, sorry, we're going to stop the show. Goodness, I'm <laughs> earlier. We are. <laughs> So, all right, yeah, so, okay. cool. So, yeah, someone's going to be triggered by it. By it. Um, in the sense that they don't understand how the Second Amendment works. Uh, they don't understand what the federal laws and statutes already sort of say on that side. And they see America as this gun nut mania. And then I just have to say, but look at our heavily restrictive firearm laws, and we've got a homicide rate nearly 10 times of theirs. So it's not working, guys. We need to get off our high horse here and bash the Yanks. As much as we hate their food and their cars, we need to, you know, uh, at least play the ball and not the man. With regards to our own constitutional rights, we've got the right to life in the Bill of Rights. And that includes safety and security of the person, um, right to uh, security of property. It has a few subclauses. Now, we do not have any explicit right to keep and bear arms. We don't have a Second Amendment in South Africa, but it can be implied in the sense of what is the worth of having the right to life constitutionally if you're not allowed access to any object with which to protect it or rather the most effective object with which to protect that right to life. Also, you've got the right to freedom of association. So if you wish to participate in a sports shooting event or be a hunter, you are being denied the ability to associate with the activity you want, which is not illegal. So it's it's not, like I said, it's not explicit, but there can, there can be an argument there. 
uh, the Farms Control Act in itself, it's it's a terrible law. It's 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 really just horribly written, and the judge ruling on the uh, expired license case that's now been referred to the Constitutional Court actually made comment in her specific ruling in the North Gauteng High Court, well, the Pretoria uh, branch of it, mm. that according to the Farms Control Act is just it, it's a dismally written law. We've made it work more through. Uh, in the, well, we've been a bit resourceful and almost hard-headed and in pushing through it and making it not the complete travesty that it's written as. But that was not due to intent. That was just due to the community not. If it, if it was enforced as it was written, so if it was, you know, in your opinion, if, if it was enforced in the exact way that the people who wrote it wanted it to be enforced, what would the result be? Well, the preamble of it states very clearly it is for the purpose of civilian disarmament. Uh, they have not quite 17 years later gotten that right. So they wanted to take guns away from civilians and leave our military as the only people, our military and our police, as the only people with guns in this country. Essentially. And I, I, do, I do ask some of you who might have been pro this in 2000. We're now in 2017 with a government who are now openly saying they want to raid the Reserve Bank or have, have very much promoted removal of property rights from individuals. That is sounds like a horrible idea. Yeah, no, it is a it is a terrible idea. To add insult to injury, the Farms Control Act. The, another point that it was punted with is say, well, if we take guns away from civilians, we're going to stop an important source of guns to criminals because that's where they get their guns from. Which is a lie, and I can tell you exactly why it's a lie. So, according to the South African Police Services annual reports. Uh, you can it's it's available for your reading. It's in PDF format, and you might tear your hair out getting through it. But the amount of firearms recovered that are reported as stolen any calendar year are between eighty-eight to one hundred and two percent. One hundred two percent means that obviously ones reported the previous year were um, recovered as well, and they average out at about over ninety percent. So at best, a stolen firearm is a very short-term. Source for any criminal to use. So this is firearms stolen from gun-bearing citizens. No, no, pretty much from from any report, any farm that's reported as stolen, be it oh. from a security company or or from the police themselves. Or the police themselves, yeah. Oh, okay. The, While they sleep. <laughs> coming let, let coming back finish. to they're coming back to that point. Actually, I don't know if you recall the story about a certain Colonel Prinsler, who was he's now an ex-member of the South African Police Service. I think he's about to start a uh, prison sentence serving it as well and uh, he was involved with this uh, the first firearm amnesty a couple of years ago where a whole bunch of people handed in thousands and thousands of guns and he sold thousands of those guns through his contacts to gangsters in the Cape Flats he was absolutely instrumental in leaking thousands of previously you know, farms that were safe in, in responsible citizens' hands back into the criminal – well, not back. He leaked it for the first time into the criminal system. And uh, he's just one one example of it. I mean, the, the lack of track of weapons that get handed into the police that go missing, it's – we won't know the numbers because they're not being kept track of. And uh, it happens. The – there was another example of off, you know, every second day there's an R5 being found somewhere. That doesn't come from a civilian owner. That's a fully automatic weapon. So 
the police are as much a source as, as they are supposedly the panacea to the problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, from, from hearsay evidence only, I was told that, that policemen were caught renting out their firearms on weekends for people, for hijackers to use them, and then they return them on Sunday night before they go back to 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 their work. I don't know if that's true. I hearsay, and there was one or two cases Sounds like, like that. Sounds like making the state more efficient to me, Ramon. I don't know why you're complaining. I mean, those guns weren't going to be used. But it's only 150, <laughs> it's only 150 in a weekend. Maybe I should, should, should do that well, instead of just getting a gun for myself. You, re- you remember that, that two SA infantry battalion base uh, near Kalicha that got raided not all that long ago? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and... So people uh, attack – well, not attack they, – they rob a military base of fully automatic firearms. Now, I ask you with tears in my eyes, how on earth does this actually happen? It's it, – it, travesty doesn't really cover it. Well, if you think it was a, a real robbery. Yeah, okay. That's a very pertinent point. Yeah. Some are arguing – some political factions might be arming themselves to create – a paramilitary force on the side. Well, this is also an interesting sort of branch of discussion because you are—you might be aware that the ANC actually own guns as as a political party. I, as far as I'm aware, as they, a political party, as though. a political party, is, that, is like, that legal? Do they not have to be a registered security organisation? They had a special dispensation, I think, pre 1994, for firearms to be licensed to the organisation and kept in the Thule House that can then be assigned signed out rather to specific individuals for whatever purposes they had. I'd like to know how many of those firearms, A, firstly still have their licenses uh, and if they expired or not, and secondly, where are they, who who keeps... Sorry, sorry, the apartheid government gave a special dispensation to the ANC to carry weapons. Uh, Am I correct in that statement? Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So <laughs> that's completely uh, arbitrary, and the revisionists will have a huge problem with that. Um, okay. So the ANC is armed. Okay. That's great news. <laughs> so now, but let's talk about civilians. Right. So generally speaking, do we have data on how many civilians are armed, let's say, legally? And do we have like the demographics of those people? About the last I saw, now this is old data, so it could be significantly more by now or significantly less but because it's been about three or four years. But we have between two and a half to three million uh, legally licensed natural persons, not security. This is the warm flesh and blood person like you and I with yeah. the farm license. There's about two and a half to three million of us. The demographics have changed quite drastically from 1994. Uh, our fellow citizens have kind of woken up to the fact that the National Party has gone and they can actually now legally own guns. And they have been doing it. It's been it's – t- it's taken a while because I think there was a long, long time a stigma attached to gun ownership that it's middle-aged white men only. In fact, Rebecca Davis of the Daily Maverick was – quite famous in, in telling everyone on Twitter how the middle-aged gun lobby uh, infuriates her. Uh, then sent a picture of a, a young black lady who won gold in her combat rifle competition, and then uh, Rebecca blocked me. Uh, so I, I don't know what happened after that. But Oh, you get used to it. <laughs> uh, I'm str- that's strange. Eh? She doesn't normally block people. No, normally she likes to interact and engage with mm. ideas. Yeah, she she says that's an interesting idea. Let's talk about it sometime. Then she comes on your podcast. Yes, remember that time. 
Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, sorry. So demographically, arguably, there's quite a lot of, of black citizens with legally owned firearms. Yes, and they, there's more and more every day. If I look now at gun owners of South Africa where I'm involved, our new membership requests are easily 50 to, to 65% black people that join the organization, that want to get help in licensing their first firearm, that come and ask questions. And that is a great shift to see because, in all honesty, that's where the future of gun ownership in this country is. And these people need to become not only involved in owning the firearm, but involved in their gun rights and protecting it. Because, mm. let's be honest, that's the one thing the state likes to erode away is they're not really – no government is genuinely comfortable with an armed citizenry. Not even the American one, as Republican as they are, that's why the Second Amendment – Exists in the constitution. There, the constitution. After all, exactly. Yeah. Right, uh, right. And, and just sorry, just anecdotally mm. before you go, I, I'm part of a, a group on Facebook called Gun Sight, and it started by Afrikaners, right? Because it says Rayon van Heerden or whoever started it, and, and there's rules. It's not a democracy, <laughs> etc. I love those rules on Facebook groups. <laughs> I know. I should refer a guy on Facebook I know to that group. Actually, he'd love rules. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then I'm actually. Very, very surprised how many, okay, I assume they're black people due to their names, right? If it's a, I doubt there's an Afrikaner guy called, That's uh, fine, you're allowed to assume their race, Tandek, you're not allowed to assume gender. I don't know if there's a black Afrikaner called Tandeket Lamini. I doubt it. But anyway, and the photos, they look quite black. But anyway, I'm surprised how many black people actually are on that forum. They, Posing questions or answering questions or giving advice. And I was it, very surprised. It's funny. It's kind of like a recent development. Recent, I mean, like the last three years that it's been, there was a slow sort of influx of more and more black people on the social media gun forums. And it's turned into like a steady stream of them now. And this is, I mean, that's, that's, that's where we, we, we want to be. That's, right. that's the best news for the, for any gun rights organization. Well, yes, absolutely. It shouldn't be something that's specific uh, to race or any no, particular and, and group. Been, yeah. Every citizen of the country who wants to own a firearm or a weapon should be allowed to do so exactly. in, in a legal manner. Um, can we get sort of, okay, we've gone through the legal stuff and, 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 uh, maybe you just want to quickly just finishing off on the legal stuff is, is, you say that two-year process doesn't isn't really as bad as it sounds. Do you want to – someone listening, they don't have a gun, but they, they're interested. They want to get one, but they've also heard it takes two years and they have to give all kinds of uh, bodily fluid samples and, you know, all that stuff. And uh, they've got to dedicate every Saturday of their weekend to whatever uh, proficiency. Can you tell us what the process is? I can. I can summarize it for you quickly. I wrote a very nice – uh, write up on it that people can go and read. Oh, through. tell us where that is. Uh, I can supply you with the. Uh, it's on. It's. You can just Google. Mm. Uh, how do I license a firearm and just add gun servant at the end? And okay. that will. But but you want to just go through yeah. it very quickly. You're, you're going to start with your competency application. That's going to be uh, your first step on the road towards getting your firearm license eventually. And that involves finding an accredited training institution, which you can uh, do through the um, accredited or the governing body's website, which I'll provide for you guys to put out there for the listeners. Uh, You do the modules, which will involve a law module about the Farms Control Act and a little bit about the Criminal Procedure Act, like when can you shoot, when can't you. Like not a closed door. No. Yeah. And, and, 
you know, preferably just check if your girlfriend's in the mm, good idea. Yeah. Uh, so you <laughs> you're going to be doing a module on the law. Then you're going to be doing a, a slightly more technical one about the actual workings of firearms and safety involved in operating one. And then you're going to do an open book test, a closed book test, and then they'll take you to the f- shooting range, and you'll have to pass a very rudimentary shooting test that will. Uh, what kind of criteria is involved will depend on what sort of are you doing a rifle competency or a handgun or a shotgun or whatever. Once that is done, you're going to get your certificate from the institution. This is not your competency certificate. This is essentially your certificate that states you've completed the required unit standards. You then take that certificate with uh, passport photos, two of them, as well as a, a form that you fill in that is your competency application. And preferably get – you're going to need a, uh, several character references. I put mine in in writing. They might actually want to interview people physically, but definitely your wife if you're married or your girlfriend and then other people that you're not related to. And uh, add that in and apply for the competency certificate. You'll then get that back hopefully within three months uh, that you'll – it's approved. It's a printout that you fetch at the station that has your certificate number on it that says this is a competency certificate and a handgun and what, what. And now you can actually use that in your application for a firearm. So while you're waiting for that competency certificate, you can go out there. You can pick a firearm you'd like to own. You can purchase it. You can't leave, obviously, the dealership's prem- premises with it. Mm. But it can lie there, wait for you. You can get the uh, safe installed because you need a, a safe that's bolted to the wall or floor according to SABS specifications. And uh, once you've got all that squared away, written a motivation letter, which is it sounds harder than it is uh, for whatever purpose you wish to license it, whether it be for occasional sport or for self-defense or whatever. And then you apply for the farm license, and that's about another, usually about another 90-day wait, at which point you'll be granted the license. You can take that to the gun shop, pick your farm up. So it's uh, I mean I'm actually in the process and my the, the guy at the police station where I have to you have to go within your jurisdiction. Yeah, it's I'm not 100% sure exactly how this works because it seems to change from uh, person to person and place to place like there are guys that can go to the DFO near their place of work and there are others that are sort of obligated to go to the one where they in the area they live. If you live midway between two police stations I don't actually know. How they'd figure that one out. <laughs> right. And, okay, so, so you're in contact with your police station. I mean, I'm going through this at the moment. The problem is that the dedicated firearms officer at my police station has been on sick leave for three weeks. So no, nothing gets done, nevertheless. What, what, what impact has the act had on, I don't know if you know this, but like on, on gun sales perhaps or on, uh, gun associations? Has it actually bolstered? Associations, because now they actually got something to fight about, or has it increased gun ownership or decreased? I don't know if you have those those stats. I, I don't have all the stats, but I know for a fact it decimated the industry initially after its implementation. It was it, it did a heck of a lot of harm, and a lot of uh, dealerships closed down, and a, a lot of people were intimidated by the concept of changing over from the old Arms and Ammunition Act onto the new system, and they kind of were coerced to hand their firearms in by threats from uh, the then director of the uh, Central Farms Registry who threatened to arrest people who didn't comply with the pretty much an unlawful order. And uh, there were a lot of people that, that weren't as convinced of their rights as we have today. And uh, that 
cut down the amount of people that owned licenses quite significantly. That has at, recovered to at least the point before the act came in now, if not now exceeding it to numbers that we have more gun owners than we had before. It's very likely. Uh, we've got, however, law of unintended consequences. Let's talk about that one quickly. We now have people that are obligated, forced by this law, to, in order to keep some of their firearms, they need to participate in either sport shooting events or hunting events X amount per year, which means they go out there, they are shooting under the supervision of a, a supervision of a range officer, a course of fire, or they are doing something else that gets them trigger time and that gets them uh, basically hands-on time with their firearm. They're becoming more competent, they're becoming more proficient, and they're definitely becoming safer as they do so. So law of unintended consequences, all of a sudden, you may have a few firearm owners less, but your quality of farm owner has increased because now I've got people who don't just leave the gun in the safe all day anymore. They now actually actively go out and do things with it. Right. So, so you have a far more informed and well-trained militia, which, well, is, which is ironically what the government didn't want. <laughs> Well, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, I like I like putting another spin. I, I, I don't think they form together, so <laughs> perhaps not a militia. No, I, I like to to think of Ro, um, Ronald Noble. He was the previous Secretary General of Interpol, and after the Westgate Mall attacks in Nairobi, Kenya, yeah. twenty thirteen, he actually came out and uh, he said something along the lines of that: a armed citizenry can be a very powerful tool or deterrent against this sort of terror attack and that they are he alluded to the fact that there's security benefits for a nation to have a well-trained and armed lawfully armed citizenry mm. and uh, that's something that hasn't actually been embraced by a lot of countries yeah. at all okay so i'm glad you brought that exact point up because i wanted to get over this sort of boogeyman of guns which is the utility of of firearms um and and, you know, I think a lot of people feel you gave at the beginning of the podcast, you gave the example of, well, I didn't feel safe with my hockey stick. And I think a lot of people at home either think that, well, it's fine. I don't need a firearm. I'll use a hockey stick or a kitchen knife or something like that. Um, if, if I need to, or, uh, they, they, you know, guns are, are, are too dangerous or they think, well, I'll, I'll rely on the police. I'll rely on the police or, I'll rely on my security company. I pay for armed response, and therefore, I'll be fine. Um, you want to sort of I would go to, into some of those myths? I would love to dive into these. Uh, firstly, the average response time of the South African Police Service in a 2015-2016 cycle was 18 minutes and 23 seconds. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> very specific, according to, to their performance uh, review. Now, 18 minutes and 23 seconds is a heck of a long time to have somebody with violent intent in your house with you. Uh, and that is a best case scenario of, of a response time. I wouldn't want to, you know, you are essentially the first responder hmm. to your personal crimes and you always are. And, sure. and well, well, if a projectile travels at 800 meters per second, it's, it's going to beat the police there, put yep. it that way. So you, no matter how you try and outsource your safety, you're always going to be the first person affected by a breach of that safety. And, Unless you have the capacity to fend off whatever danger is heading your way right now, you are kind of relegated to this, this default status of being a victim. You're not you, – what, what are your options at the moment except just mm. accept what's happening to you, which is really not where I want to be personally. And I hope there's a lot of people out there who also don't want to condemn themselves to that status. 
Then with regards to where, what was the, the the previous thing just before we talked about the the, the well, security. I'll have I have another weapon. I'll use it. I'll use a different weapon. Ah, no. So with regards to handguns, their terminal ballistics are terrible. They are the only reason we like handguns is because they're easy to carry on your person, and because they shoot a relatively respectable caliber out of something you can hold in your hand. Uh, shot placement is more v- – there's no such thing as stopping power in a handgun. That's also s- stuff that even gun owners are guilty of saying that, oh, you know, my forty-four Magnum has stopping power. So it, it really doesn't. It shoots a small caliber projectile with a limited velocity mm. at somebody's body. And unless you hit something that's going to either switch him off or deter him from continuing to attack you, you might not actually stop him at all. There's an example in the U.S., uh, about two or three years ago of a guy that did a, a stop on a perpetrator that they were looking for involved, got involved in a gunfight around his police cruiser with this guy. And he shot the chap 17 times with a 40 caliber Smith and Wesson. And, uh, twice, two of those shots were in the suspect's head and he carried on fighting until eventually he killed over from none of the, well, I think five or six of the wounds were not survivable. But he was still in the fight for they long enough. They weren't instantaneously fatal. He was on his last magazine, and he had three rounds left when the fight was over. So handguns don't – even a handgun makes me nervous because I might not actually succeed in stopping the threat with it. It's an interesting point because I've never heard anyone bring that up as a reason why you need to have a semi-automatic rifle or an assault rifle at home. Um, but – it's if, an argument. If someone breaks into my house, I would prefer to go to my shotgun if mm-hmm. I could. That would be what, because then at least I know my chances of stopping him with the first shot is a lot more. Because if you don't stop the guy, the distance that can be closed, there was something called the toilet drill. And it's, it's really just an, an experiment. And what they did is they took a guy at uh, 21 feet, which is around about 7 meters, away from a guy who had a gun in a holster. And uh, at the uh, initiation of the guy with his knife running at the defending party with the gun, they would see at what distance does he need to be away from from the defender to allow him enough time to get the farm out and present it and then maybe get a shot on target before the knife is in him. And anything less than seven meters, you're not going to get the gun out before the guy has a Mm. knife in you generally, unless you – obviously, you can mitigate it by moving sideways, by having a little bit of – uh, I'm not going to call it martial arts. Tactical, some, tactical sort of uh, Using your arms knowledge. and legs to keep the guy away from you, that sort of thing. So guns are put out there as this really big, scary thing that, oh, you know, you can kill someone. With, of course you can. I can kill someone with, uh, with a hammer as well, or with a, a pickaxe. But the fact is we, we talk so much about how effective and frightening firearms are. We sometimes forget to mention, but they – have very much limitations in their ability to actually stop someone else already, hence the importance of training. That's something else to come into. Right, and, and that's just based on the shots that actually hit the target. That's exactly I mean, what what is the conversion rate of, of shots fired to actually hitting the target? I would, it's very low. I would lie to you if I told you, but in the shooting that I had to perform in 2015 to save a friend's life from a meth addict with a knife, uh, I've had I fired three shots and only one struck the target. The one that struck the target was the one that stopped the attack immediately. But uh, it's also you're, you're at a distance of two to three meters. You're off balance. 
you are under a heck of a lot of pressure and you are moving the fastest you've ever moved in your life. You are essentially, you're getting all those physiological things like auditory exclusion, tunnel vision. You have the massive adrenaline dump. And I think I fired three shots in under a second. It was, uh, it was very fast. Yeah. I mean, for more, for more context on this, on YouTube, there's a channel called Active Self Defense. And it's a guy who's a, he's a, a firearms trainer and he gets CCTV camera footage of robberies or hijackings or things like that. And he shows you what could have been done better or what, what the guy did well or didn't do well. And you could see people literally dancing around each other within a three meter radius and they, they empty magazines and nothing hits. It's quite amazing. If you do a bit of sports shooting, you actually realize just under the pressure of a timer, you're, you're, not, you're not under any sort of threat. You're just trying to get as good score as possible. You will miss a man-sized torso target at two meters easily if you, if you fluff it. And it happens all the time. And people think, okay, you know, you just point the gun at somebody and you're going to hit them. You, you might not hit them at all, especially if they're moving and especially if they're presenting a threat to you, probably not going to hit them the first way or on the first try. And secondly, are you going to hit them anywhere significant? Are you just going to give them a flesh wound which will make them more grumpy or what are you going to achieve? Right, mm. right. And that's why in, in close quarters, knives are far more dangerous, in, Abs- my, in my opinion. No, knives are knives – are, uh, Almost underestimated by people who think, oh, you know, it's just don't bring a knife to a gunfight is the single most arrogant and ignorant thing anyone can mm-hmm. say because uh, I would rather be attacked by a guy with a, with a handgun than I'd be attacked by a guy with a knife, to be brutally honest with you. I'd rather be shot than stabbed if I tell you from a medical perspective. I'd rather not do any of those do things. Do either. That's, that's, that's yeah, the sure. best call. I think, um, I think that's better. But let's not, let's not take away the I want to have a gun in my house because then, I mean, so we using the knife example, people are going to say, well, you just said knives are quite decent in close quarters. So, you know, why do you need your gun? Why not, why not just keep some kitchen knives next to your bed? Because doing – or let me put it this way. Defending yourself with a knife effectively takes a heck of a lot more skill than doing so with a firearm. And you have to get close to the person. You have to person. get up close. And here's, here's the rule about knife fights. Both parties are going to bleed. And – that's why with a firearm, I might be able in a position not to bleed. I'd prefer that. I like not having my fluids outside of my – well, let's rephrase. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'd like not that's having my – That's Ramon. done again. My, my, I'm married to a doctor, so I have to really rephrase carefully what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't want my, my blood outside my body, yeah. preferably. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Um, also, I mean, on this – that sort of question Sam Harris did a great podcast I think it's still one of his best actually about two years ago called The Riddle of the Gun if you haven't listened to it it's, it's well worth listening to but he makes similar examples he uses the the, the um, experiment you spoke about in terms of knives and gunfights but also speaks about um, how to do any job you want to use the tool that is the most um, applicable to that to that task um, and has the most chance of success rate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And simply put, for self-defense and protection, there is nothing better than a firearm. No, there isn't. Uh, I like quoting something that somebody else said, whose name I can't remember. But a handgun allows a 45-kilogram woman to defend herself effectively against a, an attacker that's two to three times her body mass. Uh, there's, there's not a, yeah. any other tool I think of that really empowers a woman to that extent, which is something else we can touch on later, I suppose. 
Well, let's touch on it now. Maybe we can touch on it now. <laughs> so empowered women. So if you speak to, to a lot of the social justice feminists, an empowered woman has blue spiky hair, uh, moans about the patriarchy all the time, and is probably a lesbian, and writes about gaming culture being sexist. Uh, when I see, when I think empowered woman, I think, yeah, only a gun's got quite sexy driving an old school Land Rover. That's pretty cool. So let's talk about women and, and self-defense because. Can I interrupt you somewhere and just say oh, right. that okay. thankfully, and this is one of the best parts of, of the changing demographics of farm ownership is we're getting a lot more young women interested in owning farms and doing sports shooting. And uh, that makes going to the range a heck of a lot more fun. So. I'm 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 glad to see that development. Right, because a few a few uh, months ago by now there was that men are trash hashtag trending for a long time, and everyone said no men must change because there was a, a, a spate of of femicide, so women being killed by their intimate partner, um, and I said, well, why don't you just arm women? Uh, and obviously, I was cursed out for doing something like that. But then again, a lot of the people on the left, the so-called woke Twitter, said, "No, okay, fun. Uh, let's build a fund to buy pepper spray, you know, on in bulk and distribute it." Let's. There was a, a lady in Soweto who started like a self-defense class, and I thought to myself, "This is all well and good, but this is the same argument I'm making. It's just a different utility." Well, it's moving in the right direction, which is heartening. It's not quite embracing the scary gun thing just quite yet but it's it's a step closer to just accepting victimhood which i understand this is a difficult mental transition for certain people to make because of historically where they're coming from but if you're going to go for pepper spray and and krav maga classes you might as well go the whole hog and investigate what it's going to require from you to owning a farm. And I'll be honest, it's not for everybody. There's a lot of sure. people out there who you don't want to own them for good reason. There's a lot of people who shouldn't own them for good reason. But it's it's something that's not rocket science. You don't need to be a particularly uh, highly intelligent, highly qualified person to be a safe and responsible farm owner. And I think the vast majority of the population can be exactly that. Do you think – that if you if you're now gonna go and get a firearm, do you think before you do something like that, you need to think about the the idea that if you shoot at someone, there's a high risk you'll kill them. So you need to be okay with that. You need to absolutely think about that, and you also have to realize that in the event of you defending your life with a firearm, there is going to be a process that's going to follow. And it might be distressing and it will involve paperwork and it might involve legal fees. But it's no different really than if you kill someone in self-defense, for example, or injure them with any other object. So it's not a situation that's unique to guns. It's it's not now suddenly worse because you've defended yourself with a firearm. There's no provision in the law that, that makes any distinction for that. So whether you are hijacked in your driveway and you reverse over the attacker and he's dead on scene, you're, it's, it's not going to make any difference. And that's also the thing that puts people off a lot is they go, oh, yeah, but if you own a gun and if you defend yourself, you're going to go to prison, which is a myth. That's not true. Do not, however, shoot somebody in the back running away with your television yeah. You can't set. be irresponsible. 
No, you can't be irresponsible. You can't be stupid. You need to you need to understand exactly what the Criminal Procedures Act and the Farms Control Act mm. stipulate, because there is no real self-defense law. It's there are various clauses and several laws that then need to be read in context with each other. Do you think the age restriction of eighteen is a reasonable one in that case? So are eighteen-year-olds uh, mature enough? Because I've always thought all these age restrictions, and maybe you'll say, yes, they are 14-year-olds are mature enough. I mean, age is a, is an arbitrary – it is a bit arbitrary. You know, it could have been 18, and if we liked the number 17 as much as we liked 18, we might use 17. So um, I'm just wondering because it does take a, a level of maturity. And I know when I was younger and, and, and uh, some of my friends, you know, early 20s who had got firearms, they were immature with their weapons. So they would do silly things. They would show them off and they would pull them out when they shouldn't have. And they were just, just stupid behavior. And that didn't come from the fact that they didn't know they had been told, don't do this, but it wasn't, it was just because they were being children, essentially. Essentially. Um, can I quote Count Dankula? Because I saw he was mentioned. Quote whoever you like. He, uh, <laughs> he said something about maturity. And he said, well, some people are – he's met people that were mature enough to have sex consensually at age 16. And he's met people who aren't mature enough to have sex at age 29. So it is indeed a relative thing. Uh, with regards to owning and driving a car, you can be 18 and do that. Sure. I also got, a deadly weapon. Exactly. I got my commercial pilot's license at age 18. And I can do – I'd, I'd like to believe I can do more damage through negligence with that little piece of paper than I can with the farm license. Um, no, but you can do the most damage at 18 just by voting. It, there you go. That's another thing. Hey, someone 18. agrees with you for once so, about voting. That is the most damaging thing you can do. So the, the age restriction is an interesting one. And it's saying, oh, let's lower to 18 is bound to upset people, which is kind of why I like the idea of it. But it's, it's also a thing of why would irresponsible behavior uh, – Present itself. Is it because there are no consequences, or is it because the uh, teaching or the the medium that is supposed to teach responsible behaviour just doesn't exist and isn't sufficient? So I think it would take people more qualified than me to investigate that, and then hopefully with like a well reasoned, rational angle come and say, okay, well this is what we recommend the policy decision be, which is entirely not how we do anything in this country, but you know we have to try. Reasonable policy in South Africa. Mm. Ready now. Ready. It's, but not, it's just a question of how you grow up, right? I mean, I'm French, right? So we drank wine from the age of two. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. Uh, so every, every dinner. I believe it. Every dinner we have wine and I hate wine. I don't drink anything at all now, but I grew up, you know, drinking wine until I was about 17. Then I had enough and now I don't drink anything. Same with guns. I grew up around guns, grew up on a farm, go hunting, shoot things, go target practice, go do sports shooting at the time. I mean, now I know how to handle a gun. I'm, I don't have one. I'm not a gun license owner. I'm not a gun owner, but I know how to handle one. It's just a question of how do you raise someone to be responsible in that way? And that's also another kind of unintended consequence of the Farms Control Act. Maybe it was intended, but I doubt it. Uh, I'm not going to give them credit for this one. Is this, the fact that people being more active gun owners and that they're involved in doing things to keep their guns and, and, and. They also have a deeper understanding of the concept of firearm safety and responsibility. And when these people have children, and I see it because there's plenty of families that go out, mom, dad, and the kids go out for a Saturday of sports shooting. The, the kids are already made gun safe in the sense that from 
a very young age, they were very much explained how it works. And the mystique of the gun was also kind of taken away because if something's not really mysterious, a kid's not going to mess with it. It's like having a toaster at home. Um, I don't recall ever really being tempted to play with a toaster. It was a fairly boring oh, thing. Oh, I've heard of all those children toaster deaths. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. Uh, so I have two more questions, I think. Two more questions. So none of us here are arguing for gun for everyone, right? I mean, we do think there should be some sort of restriction for a civilian-owned gun. I don't know what those restrictions are for me personally, but nevertheless. So if you had your way, if you were a benevolent dictator and you could have you know, one policy for gun ownership in the country, what would it look like and what sort of limitations would you have on that? I would put in straight, say, license the person, not the firearm. So you as an individual go and you go through a rudimentary process. And uh, if you are not a criminal and if you are not, uh, let's say, mentally ill at that point, but actually let's leave mental health out of it because mental health is a thing that it can change. And uh, there's already a response to taking guns away from people who exhibit unacceptable behavior. So that doesn't even need to come into it. Mm. If you are a legal citizen, if you are responsible, and uh, if you do not have a criminal record, you should be allowed to be a licensed person and then licensed firearms. Well, mental health has uh, become trendy. It's become you know, very it's become trendy to be mentally ill. So, um, because everything's a spectrum now, you see. So, you used to actually have autistic people. Now you have the autism spectrum. So, guys who, you know, walk around with their hands in their pockets a lot are automatically autistic, you know, even though they aren't. They're just morons. Um, so, it's, uh, it's, you both can laugh at me, but that's the reality. The reality is that they are genuinely People who have mental illness, whether that be depression or um, other kinds of more chronic ailments like autism or whatever it is. Um, unfortunately, I think that my concern is is we get to a point where we go, well, you know, how often do you have a bad day, Gideon? And then Gideon goes, well, once a month, I don't feel great. And you go, oh, well, you know, you're on the lower end of the depression spectrum and then you're mentally ill, you know. So I just I worry about um, the, that as a regulation exactly. necessarily. Although I would think if you've got someone with uncontrolled schizophrenia, giving them a, a weapon is probably not the best idea. No, exactly. I think a wonderful test is if you can survive driving in Cape Town for about a year, <laughs> then without freaking out, you should, you, you, that's a good indicator that you are, well, are that, stable. That's beyond the band list straight away. <laughs> if that's your requirement, I will never own a gun ever. So, and then my final question to you. So you said, there's about 3 million people who own guns legally. Let's add another, say, half a million uh, through security companies because we know there's about 400,000 security officers, uh, private security guards, and most, some are armed, most aren't. But let's assume there's about 3.5 million legally owned guns in the country. Uh, in terms of, do we know the numbers for illegal guns? Ooh, that's a difficult <coughs> one because I've seen varying, well, widely disparate numbers. One is as low as three to four million illicitly owned firearms. The other is up at the 14 to 16 million mark. Right. So basically, but it outstrips legally owned guns. It does. Right. So assuming there are roughly 20 million guns in the hands of citizens, illicitly or legally, that sounds like a hell of a lot of people, considering we only have 140,000 police officers and how many people in the army? 100,000. No, less than I think seventy nine thousand or something like that right. before the retrenchment. So, so the enforcers of state policy and state law are two hundred thousand people with guns, but the 
population has. Why are you complaining? 15 million guns. I mean, I'm, I'm, but I'm just trying to prove the point here that A, the law is not working anyway. And B, there wouldn't be a national democratic revolution. So fuck it. Everyone should own more guns. Well, interestingly about those illicitly owned firearms, uh, I'm, I'm not convinced there's 7 million criminals in this country. That would just really not make sense to me. Uh, well, the parliament's not that big, firstly. So, <laughs> well done. Well done. Not enough seating. But there is a large section of, of poor South Africans who can't afford to comply with the provisions of the Farms Control Act of South Africa. And they live in some of the most dangerous areas in this country. I mean, they live in the middle of Tembisa, Alex. Uh, is there still a bad part to Soweto at this point? Uh, yeah, there are some. There are slightly more dangerous parts than others. Okay. Well, but, but not not how it used to be. Well, that's where you'll find these guys and 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 women, and they face an elevated threat level from criminals and people living in suburbia. And out of desperation to actually have something with which to protect themselves, they would rather run risk of arrest and prosecution by owning a, an unlicensed firearm than they'd have running the risk of facing whatever they're dealing with on a daily basis without the ability to protect themselves. And that's why I, I hate statistics as a policy instrument in the sense of it always obfuscates more than it reveals. And uh, it's just before we tie everything up, uh, the homicide rate in this country is, let's say, uh, actually, let's just say absolute homicides was about 18,000 for the last year, just over. It doesn't differentiate how many of those homicides were police officers shooting criminals or citizens shooting criminals. It just says, okay, these are the amount of homicides we have. There's no ruling attached because it could take a while before an inquest is finalized or a, a murder trial is where guilt or innocence is determined. So everything's lumped together as this is a, this is a homicide. And we're going on, okay, if, Police shoot more criminals in a given year than they have previously. It's possible that the absolute amount of homicides and the rate itself will increase, and we'll see this as a bad thing that everything is more, everyone's less safe than they previously were, or more likely to be murdered. But there's no detail to the data. So what are, what are we, we need to know what we're getting hysterical about when we're getting hysterical about something. Mm. All right. Well, less hysteria about guns and uh, be informed. And if you want one, get one. Please. Yeah, well, I mean, Gideon would like you all to get one. Um, and I, I don't think it's a, it's a terrible idea. I think uh, a lot of the reasons people don't own firearms are around kind of mythology around weapons and guns and all the processes around that. Yeah, and, and the biggest one for some reason, someone always says, no, I don't want to own a gun because then when they do break in, they will shoot me with my own gun. I don't know where that came from. I know exactly where that came oh, from. Oh, do you know? Uh, it was – okay, first it was a gun-free South Africa um, soundbite where they say you're four times as likely to be shot with your own firearm than you are to use it defensively. And they perverted and twisted that conclusion from a, a, a report that they – or rather a study they commissioned from Anthony Altbecker years ago where he investigated a, a data set and – I think his exact words, I have it somewhere online, is he said that the findings of the study militate against drawing conclusions that you are 
what's the word, more likely to have your weapon used against you than to successfully use it in defense. So he completely, he, nowhere did he... said, he, don't make this conclusion. And yeah, then they made that conclusion. Exactly. And then they added a ratio to it, like you're four times as likely, which is nowhere in his, his body of yeah. work. Also, the general public generally doesn't understand things like likelihood, odds ratios, all those kinds of things. Those are sort of scientific study terms, which don't actually mean... What you think they mean They don't necessarily mean you four times as likely It's not necessarily greater Well it's like that thing where they say 17% of women uh, Well murdered by their spouses Or murdered by use of a farm I say well 83% of women aren't That are murdered aren't What about Hmm. Why are we not worried about them at all For some reason Yeah Yeah Okay interesting Interesting So I just got one last point from me The, the, The greatest arguments against a large proliferation of guns in the civil, in the citizenry, so to speak, was written by a philosopher. It was written during the time where a lot of, not to say, but black men were being murdered, or not murdered, killed by police in the US two, three years ago. And his argument was, if we are unaware that our, our colleagues or citizens or people on the streets, if we, if we don't know whether they are armed or not, it it can limit our scope to actually interact in a fashion that is not not congeal. But if as a policeman and you are unsure, and guns are freely available and easy to get, you are unsure if that suspect or that person that you stopped is armed or not. It creates a heightened sense of tension that something might go wrong because you are just unsure. I've got uh, – if we ever do a follow-up podcast, I've got, I've got one or two people. I'd, 2019, man. We're booked. Yeah, I, I'd like to uh, bring a, a chap with called Brian Minnie. He occasionally writes for my blog as well. He's an incident management specialist at Cisco Systems. But he was in the SAPS in the 90s, and he did some security contracting work in sandy places. And uh, he's, his big passion is policing and policing policy. And uh, he's – done seminars across in the US and and locally. He's still an active reservist. And uh he's had some he'd have some interesting insights on on why that isn't is not the correct conclusion to draw. Oh right. Okay. Well we'll talk I mean are we, is anyone in a rush here? No. No I actually want to talk about police. So we've got a new minister of police. Razmataz, or what should we call him now? Because now he's he's not like a <laughs> sports minister anymore. So we need a new a new Deadly. <laughs> so it, it came out. Or so Dudley. Dudley. Right, you know, it's right. not so sharp. Or, or Remington Taz. No, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Nevertheless. That's, so, a, that's a good try. This is what happens when the podcast goes on too long. You come indeed. up with these things. But, but I want to go to policing because obviously it's, it's important. So he came out when it was a reshuffle. President Atul gave him a job a few years back and he reshuffled him again a few months ago. And he came out and he was like big on this like gun control thing for a, for like a month or two. And then he softened his stance and then it came out that he actually owns a gun. Yeah, he does. Ironically, a CZ. So as you told me before, he has taste. He does. We, we have to, we have to give credit words due at least. You know? Right. So he owns a gun. So now what is the feeling around Fikile being the minister of police in terms of Owning guns and, and things like that. I would personally like to make him an honorary member of gun owners of South Africa because uh, I think I think if we uh, if we all just were a bit more honest about it and politicians don't obfuscate these sorts of things, like there's nothing wrong with you owning a private firearm, even if you are the minister of police, that's fine. 
then just don't come out and, and say things about how you want to strengthen gun control then because now you're turning it into this wonderful Marie Antoinette esque situation where you are the elite and the anointed to rule and the rest of us plebs and proletarians must just you know let us eat cake. Uh, that's not how that's not how democratic society works, and I, I think he discovered it because he backpedaled on that. Well, let's give let me give him the benefit of doubt here. He clarified through his office in the report to Erica Gibson a few days after um, he came out for stronger gun controls that he actually has no problem with legally licensed firearms, and they were specifically referring to uh, unlicensed ones only. And now that we have that on record, I think uh, we should hold the minister to those comments and to that uh, stance and make sure that uh, he, he keeps his uh, keeps his promise. Yeah, it was the first time in quite a while that guns came up in in politics. Exactly. Yeah. I just hope his spokesman doesn't have one because God forbid. <laughs> well, don't interview him. <laughs> don't interview him. In the studio. Ah, no. Is that too? Not a chance. I'll bring an after gun fight. <laughs> right. Can, uh, can, can we call it? Well, I'm happy. Gideon, I'm you, happy. Do you have anything else to add? Okay, we might have Gideon, I've, I've been up since 3 a.m., so my brain is so fried right now. I, I don't think I'll add anything coherent or valuable. No, it's been great. Thank you. It's, Thank you. it's been excellent. And I, I think really important, actually, because there are just a lot of people who instinctively go, guns are bad. And then that's the knee jerk reaction. And hopefully, you know, we can still have the discussion and the argument. If you do want to have that discussion, please, our Facebook page, Renegade Report Group. Uh, you can also like the, the, the um, podcast on Renegade Report uh, actual page on Facebook. But if you want to have the discussion on the group, we have these discussions all the time. I better join um, your group. I haven't been there. Disgusting. Absolutely. Group. Get out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is not being released. So, so. Yeah, we, we, we have some really good discussions on there. Uh, as always, you can find us on Facebook at Renegade underscore report. We will happily retweet you with a snarky comment if you argue with us. Anything else from you, Ramon? Right. I think people should get armed before the 2019 election. That will not happen. Yes. So in order for the election in 2019 to happen, hmm. uh, we must all be armed to ensure that, you know, the politicians know we are serious. I think it's more important. It's even more urgent than that. You need to get armed before the SA Reserve Bank starts printing money wholesale. Inflation goes to a million percent. Right. And then people literally start breaking down your door to steal your milk. Yeah, I don't know if you should shoot them, but yes. And, okay, you, and you won't it. be able to afford the ammo with a hyper inflation. That is true. Unless you steal it from the military barracks. Come on, reloads, man. <laughs> Do your own reloads. Right, thank you for listening. This is the Renegade Report, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cliffcentral.com